We are continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, this morning we're actually going to go back a little bit into chapter 4 and pick up the last couple of verses there again, and then look at the first couple of verses in chapter 5. Uh, so Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 23, and then we'll read through uh, chapter 5, verse 3. And that can be found on uh, page number 1,501 of your pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we talked about the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. We said that the kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom ruled by his son, Jesus Christ. And at this time, that kingdom is invisible and it takes hold in the hearts and the minds of those who believe the promises of God given to us in Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins and who follow him. And so this morning, we're turning our attention to Jesus's most famous sermon. We all know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus never calls it that, but that's what we've come to call it. And in this sermon, Jesus teaches us what the results are in the life of someone who has entered the kingdom of heaven through repentance and faith and put their trust in the promises of God. And so what I'd like to do this morning is is establish a connection between chapter 4 and chapter 5. I think so many times we can preach right up through the end of chapter 4, and then we pick up right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we sort of lose the context, like what what Jesus is doing and the the purposes of, uh, of him launching into the sermon based on what has just happened at the end of chapter 4. Because this world has its own idea what the blessed life really is which is usually tied to our own personal happiness. Most people in this world consider themselves blessed if life is going well, if they have the things or the circumstances in life that they would prefer. And so to to get an example or a taste of how the world thinks about the blessed life, I decided to go on Twitter uh, this last week and just search the hashtag blessed and uh, see what people are saying about the blessed life. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with hashtags uh, or how social media works, a hashtag is just a way of flagging a post on social media and categorizing it with other similar posts. So you simply put a pound sign, like you see on the screen. Uh, Those are now called hashtags. I know we all used to know them as pound signs, but it's, it's a hashtag now. And you put that in the front of a word, you put it into your post 
on Facebook or Twitter uh, or Instagram, and then everybody else who has that same hashtag, all their posts are categorized together. So I just searched hashtag blessed on Twitter, and here's some samples of what I came up with. A man named Glenn, he says, six years cancer-free for our son Cameron. We are so happy and thankful to be able to share this. Don't know where we would be without St. Jude's Hospital and the amazing staff and Dr. Merchant. God has blessed Cameron and our family. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag cancer-free. Eliza says, at-home gardening. Hashtag blessed. And she has a picture of what I'm sure is her garden there at her house. Someone named Brent tweets a picture of him and his daughter, and he says, my first daddy-daughter dance. Hashtag blessed. A young man named Colin, who apparently has aspirations to play college football, says, blessed but still working, I'm not done yet, followed by four exclamation points. Hashtag blessed. Then I found a cute photo of a man calling himself Dr. Mark and his, uh, his granddaughter. He tweeted, Getting wild at Party City. This little one turns two tomorrow. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag grandpa life. And then Cole says, blessed to be able to have reached a thousand points so far in my high school basketball career. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag God is great. A guy named Andes, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He says, my first grandson arrived on Valentine's Day. I can't wait to take him fishing and hunting. Hashtag blessed. And then finally, one of my favorites, uh, someone calling themselves Kong Steezy, says, uh, just got gifted a whole wheel of my favorite goat cheese. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Now, in a sense, each one of these people are blessed. Especially the man whose son has been cancer-free for six years. We can all resonate with that. We would all agree that that is a true blessing. Every person posting these things is clearly expressing gratitude. They, they understand that their circumstances are good in life, that their circumstances are preferable, and that not everybody has been given the wonderful thing that they notice that they have. On some level, they're all aware of the fact that this is something good that they are experiencing. It's something that could have been different. They recognize the sweetness in it, and many of them even give uh, their gratitude to God. But are these the blessings of the kingdom of heaven? Last week, we didn't really look at the final two verses of chapter 4, and so I'd like to just consider them now for a moment. Matthew tells us, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So there are about 200 cities or villages in Galilee uh, in about a 40-mile area, and that was the area that Jesus was traveling in, proclaiming this kingdom and teaching and healing. 
And yet Matthew tells us that his popularity was so great that he was attracting people from Syria and the north and the Decapolis, which was 10 Greco-Roman cities to the southeast of Galilee. And he was also attracting people all the way from Jerusalem and Judea. Well, Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, was about 60 miles from Capernaum, which was the city in Galilee where Jesus had made his home. Jerusalem to the south was about 80 miles from Capernaum. So in a time where there were no cars, no buses, and no trains, this was quite a distance for people to come and to witness the miracles of Jesus. But of course, they would come. Because if somebody is performing miracles like this in such a way that it is verifiable and true, can you imagine the crowds that Jesus would draw now, even with our modern medicine? Just imagine people with Parkinson's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, terminal cancer, multiple sclerosis. They would all be flooding to Jesus. And then people would get their iPhones out and they would film Jesus healing somebody. And then we would see posts on Twitter with things like this. I made this up, but I imagine this is what it would be. Three months ago, my dad was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Last week, they sent him home on hospice. Today, we brought him to Jesus, and he is totally healed. Hashtag blessed, hashtag cancer-free. Or even think about people with addictions. Someone who's been on drugs for 20 years. This is the, I'm imagining the person who, who grew up diagnosed with ADHD, and then when they were adult, they were diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and they've always struggled. They've always struggled in life. They've always struggled to have friends. Can you imagine that post? My brother has always been restless on drugs for 20 years. We brought him to Jesus yesterday for the first time in his life. He has no desire for drugs, and he's finally at peace. Hashtag blessed, hashtag all is well with my soul. See, Jesus would be the most famous person in our world in about a week after doing these kinds of things, which is how we know that those who claim to be miracle workers in our world today are nothing but charlatans. Because if somebody were really performing miracles like this, it would be impossible to ignore. Just like Jesus was impossible to ignore. Then there was no 24-hour cable news, there was no social media, but the stories of what Jesus was doing were spreading as quickly and as far as they possibly could because there are few things in this life that human beings value more than being made well and having our physical pain taken away. And notice the people coming to Jesus were Gentiles from Syria and the Decapolis. They were Jews from Galilee and Jerusalem. And yet Matthew tells us that Jesus healed them all regardless of who they were, regardless of where they were from, and seemingly regardless of what they believed. Later in Matthew, as we go, we'll see that sometimes Jesus heals people regardless of whether or not they respond to his teaching in repentance and faith. 
as the king of the kingdom of heaven, the reality of this future kingdom was present with Jesus. It's like the future kingdom reality was spilling out of Jesus wherever he went. The prophets in the Old Testament had said what this kingdom and its king were going to be like. Isaiah tells us it will be like this. He says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The desert, water, the life of a city, right? This is what, this is what the prophets saw would happen. Jesus was like water in the desert. Everywhere he went, that future kingdom just spilled out of him because he was the exact representation of God's glory. John the Apostle, talking about in his gospel what it was like, he said this, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Just like Isaiah said, they will see the glory of the Lord. And then here John is saying, we saw his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The writer of the Hebrews says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in the person of Jesus Christ, this prophecy from Isaiah was being fulfilled right before their eyes. And Isaiah goes on. He says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So Jesus comes to save his people. Then the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute are healed. Remember, last week we said that Jesus' ministry took off after John the Baptist was arrested. Well, later in the book of Matthew, John is still languishing in prison, and so he sends his disciples to Jesus because he's starting to doubt. And, and he has them ask Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? And this is Jesus' response. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus offers his miracles to John as evidence that he really is the one. They were undeniable proof of his authority, his power, and that everything that he was teaching and preaching is true. Because Jesus didn't come primarily to heal people now, people who would still die after he healed them. No, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And these healings are proof that he is the king who can save us from our real problem, which is our sin. 
So it's like the fullness of the kingdom, this future kingdom of heaven, full of God's redeemed and fully sanctified people, where there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more tears, is leaking out into the present through the presence of Jesus. And the miracles are not the main event. Jesus is the main event. The miracles are just the overflow of the presence of Jesus. So we have to think rightly about what's happening here. The present kingdom is about forgiveness and repentance and peace with God through faith and the promises of God in Christ. The present kingdom is about waiting and longing and hoping for God to one day bring the fullness of the kingdom. Paul talks about this in Romans, and here's how he puts it. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we can all say, and yes, it's still groaning now, right? Not only so, but we ourselves who have now in the present the first fruits of the spirits, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Right? So one day our bodies will be redeemed. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So this present age is an age of groaning and longing and hoping and waiting. We have the first fruits of the Spirit through faith and the promises of God in Christ And so when we read about the future kingdom breaking into the present through the presence of Jesus, it actually makes us long even more. Because we believe he can do it. And we we so desperately want him to heal us. It increases our hope, but hoping is painful. Because in hoping, by its very definition, we ache for something we do not have. When we see Jesus healing all the people that come to him, we can't help but groan and desire and hope for healing ourselves. But if we hope for healing more than we trust the healer, we will have misplaced our hope. So broadly speaking, there are two ways we can misplace our hope when we read about what Jesus is doing through healing. First, we can put the cart before the horse. A horse moves a cart along. Carts don't move themselves. We have to tie the cart to the horse. The horse pulls the cart. We all get this concept, right? So in my analogy here, the kingdom of God expands through preaching the good news of the kingdom that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself And anyone who repents of their sin and believes the promises of God can have peace with God. And when someone believes those promises, they enter the kingdom of heaven, and that's the horse that pulls the cart, okay? And the cart then, the thing that follows the kingdom of heaven as it expands through the preaching of the good news and through men and women responding in repentance and faith, the cart 
is that God's law is now written on our hearts. We desire to obey his commands, not out of fear of judgment or to earn his approval, but out of love for him. His commands no longer stand over us, towering, threatening us like a judge. Instead, his commands are sweet and they're good to us. They are instructions from a loving father who who longs for us to benefit from living how he originally created us to live. And then we show our love and our gratitude to God by loving our neighbor. We love God by keeping his commandments. And when Christians live this way, Jesus says we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And the future kingdom then is still present now but it spills out from the church as we go out and live Christian lives. We don't see the evidence of it in such a dramatic way like when Jesus was here, right? We're not not as pure, concentrated of a form of it as he was. The future kingdom doesn't overflow out of us with miracles and healings like it did through Jesus, but when we love and serve our neighbor, When we care for the poor and the needy, that is the evidence of the presence of the kingdom. A few verses later, in Matthew 5, Jesus will say, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But we put the cart before the horse when we go around only doing good deeds and forgetting that the kingdom can only expand through the preaching of the gospel, when men and women respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. We put the cart before the horse when we dig wells in Africa without sharing the gospel, thinking that we've expanded the kingdom when all we've done is given people a little more time on earth before they die and spend eternity in hell. True Christianity includes the horse and the cart. But God builds his kingdom, we proclaim his kingdom, and then the good works that follow are evidence that the kingdom is still here. The other way we misplace our hope when we read about Jesus' healing ministry is by focusing on the gift more than the giver. When we look to Jesus and follow him for more for what he can give us than who he is in himself. See, it's so easy to lose sight of faith and repentance and peace with God and to focus more on health and prosperity and peace in this world. And for the most part, it seems that this is what the crowds were doing. They were more caught up with the blessings of this world that were spilling out of Jesus than in truly repenting of their sin and leaving their nets to follow him. You can picture the tweets, right? I had seven demons tormenting me for 10 years and Jesus cast them out. Hashtag blessed. I broke my leg as a child and have been in pain and limping my whole life and Jesus straightened out my leg. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag no more pain. And so Jesus sees the crowd. He sees all of this. And so then he takes his disciples up onto a mountain to teach them about the kingdom of heaven and to explain to them what the blessed life really is. Matthew tells us, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. 
So Jesus sees all the crowds flocking to him because he's this great miracle worker. And they want him because they think he will give them the things that they want. And so Jesus pulls his, crowd, his disciples away to teach them. Most commentators believe uh, that Jesus is actually pulling the disciples away from the crowds completely here. Uh, he's gathering a smaller group of his disciples. It probably wasn't just the 12, and it probably wasn't all people who had totally repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. But it was a group of people who were intrigued by Jesus, drawn to Jesus. They wanted to know more about him. They wanted to continue hearing his teaching even if he had stopped healing for the moment. And then Jesus begins to teach what it is to truly be blessed. And the first thing out of his mouth is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the word translated blessed here should not be translated happy. Happy has more of a psychological element to it where, where we feel a certain way. Happy also has a circumstantial element to it where, where we like the way things are going. We tend to be happy when things go our way. But this word is something more objective. It means being favored or privileged because you possess something that is so valuable that regardless of your feelings, regardless of your circumstances, you are still blessed. If you have this blessing, you are blessed even if you are not cancer-free. If you have this kind of blessing, you are blessed even if you end up not playing college football, if you never score another basket in high school, if your grandson who was born on Valentine's Day ends up hating hunting and fishing, and if you open that wheel of goat cheese and it's spoiled, you are still blessed. And Jesus says the person who has this blessing is poor in spirit. Notice it's not the person who's just poor. Jesus is not making a socioeconomic statement here. This is the one who is poor in spirit. The word translated poor here doesn't mean lacking, just lacking spiritual resources. Because sometimes people are poor and they don't have resources and the reason is because they don't work. They're perfectly capable of working and gaining and saving resources, but they just don't want to. That's not the kind of poverty that this word is pointing to. In the Greek dictionary, the definition of this word says, someone who is dependent on others for support. So this is the kind of poverty that you can't do anything about. One commentator said this is referring to the beggarly poor, whose only hope of having anything is the kindness of others. So the poor in spirit is the one who has no spiritual resources. This is the person who has no ability on their own to assemble spiritual resources. This is the man or woman who is spiritually poor and they realize that they're a beggar, fully dependent on the kindness of God. And we become aware of our spiritual poverty when we recognize the, the demands of God's law, that we owe God perfect obedience, and there is never a time when he will demand anything less, Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's not kidding. He's not just, he's not just saying that to a bunch of sinners to say it. He means it. 
This side of the cross, we, we try to wiggle out of the law's demands by saying things like, well, I'm a sinner. Good thing I know God forgives me. But that's not being spiritually poor. That's not begging for mercy. That's just expecting mercy. That would be like the homeless man who's not worried about where his next meal is coming from because he knows every food bank, every shelter, and every gospel mission in town. No, we're more like the person who is destitute, out in the desert, wandering around. We see a house, finally, we run up to it, we're pounding on the door, hoping and praying that somebody is there, and then when they open the door, they'd be willing to share a crumb with us. All of us tend to lower God's law down to something that we can keep. Or we imagine God as a nice old grandpa that's happy to look the other way because Jesus paid the fine. But but spiritual poverty is never losing the sense that we owe God perfect and perpetual obedience. And true blessing is realizing this, repenting of our sin, coming to God as a beggar for mercy, And when we turn our hearts to him for grace and forgiveness and righteousness, Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. In that moment, the moment we see that we owe God everything and that we have nothing to give. (laughs) Nothing. In that moment, the kingdom belongs to us. kingdom of heaven is ours as a free gift when God opens our eyes to the fact that we don't primarily need healing. We don't actually even need preferable circumstances, although we'd really like them. The only thing any one of us needs in this life is to have peace with God and to be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. If you happen to have your Bible still open, it's okay if you don't. I just want to point out that all the good parts of the rest of these blessings that Jesus is going to tell us about in uh, the first part of Matthew 5 here uh, are all in the future. (laughs) Verse 4, will be comforted. Verse 5, will inherit the earth, will be filled, will be shown mercy, will see God, will be called children of God. And then the present tense reality of those blessings right now is mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, and a peacemaker. So Jesus says the blessings now for those who are in the kingdom is a merciful, pure, achy, mourning soul. But in verse 10, there's one more that's all in the present tense. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is is the kingdom of heaven. So this, Jesus sees the crowds. He sees them responding to the evidence of his kingship. And like all of us do, they wanted worldly blessings that were spilling out of him. And so in response to that, Jesus pulls his disciples aside onto this mountain to let them know those who are truly blessed in the here and now are those who are poor in spirit 
and those who are being persecuted for righteousness. And even though there are future blessings still to come for those who have the kingdom, right now, their experience is mourning and meekness and hungering and thirsting for what they do not possess. And Jesus says that is the person who is truly blessed. Now that is a difficult message to share with people. Which is why we, including myself, mostly don't do it. It's actually a lot easier to go and dig a well or to feed a homeless person because we feel good because we're doing something good. They feel good because they're getting something that they really want. And we didn't have to make things awkward and divisive by talking about sin and repentance. Or it's a lot easier to tell someone that if they follow Jesus, their life will get better, they will feel good, they'll have more self-esteem. Or in the more health and wealth churches, they go so far as to say that Jesus wants you to be wealthy and healthy and happy. That sure is a lot easier message to share. It's a lot harder to invite people in by telling them that they'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and they have to admit that they're totally bankrupt spiritually. To tell people that God is holy and he demands perfect obedience and that they are sinners who are totally dependent on his mercy and grace, but that he'll give it to them if only they will turn to him from their sin, totally dependent on him for his mercy and grace, and then he'll bless you with mourning and meekness and persecution. Friends, this is why salvation is a total miracle. Because only God can open our eyes to see that knowing Him and having our sins forgiven and being made holy by the power of the Spirit of God is greater than any blessing this world has to offer. And this is why we have to proclaim this message Because this message that seems absurd to the world, and if we're honest, sometimes it seems absurd to us. How am I going to convince somebody that they should become a Christian when I'm telling them that that this is what it takes? It seems like no one would ever be moved to respond to God by proclaiming a message like this. That's why Paul calls it the foolishness of the gospel. It's foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. He says in Romans that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, this is why we go and we proclaim the gospel, the free grace of God offered to sinners in Christ. We don't have to worry about it because it's actually that message that cracks open their heart. And when they hear it and God, and God moves in them by the power of his spirit, regenerates their soul, they see it. They see that their sin is under the condemnation of a holy God, but that Christ took that in their place, and that now, simply by receiving that message by faith, the kingdom is theirs. May we be bold in proclaiming that message. Let's pray. Father, 
we are so easily caught up in and distracted by the blessings of this world. And you are generous in pouring them out on us. And so we thank you for that because they are real blessings. And yet, Father, help us as we begin to study the Sermon on the Mount. Help us to know where true blessing comes from. Help us to look to you and to what Christ has done that we might be united to him by faith and then cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.